0: We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Ramona Nekoway and Stefan McLaughlin. In the last two decades, industry has deployed increasingly extreme mechanisms to extract fossil fuels. From fracking to the tar sands, these forms of extraction are toxic, dangerous, and of course contribute to the growing global climate crisis. Given that, it is tempting to rush uncritically towards any energy source that brands itself as green, renewable, or sustainable. In the Canadian context, by far the most developed approach that claims those labels is hydroelectricity, that is, electricity produced via generators driven by flows of water. Around 60% of Canada's electricity is hydro, and in Manitoba, that number reaches 96.8%. Among most Canadians, hydro has a pretty green reputation. However, this benevolent image does not hold up if you actually go and talk to people who live in communities that bear the brunt of what hydro projects do. The impacts on the land are often devastating. Some lakes are dewatered, other areas are flooded, water flow patterns are altered using human-made channels, shorelines are radically reconfigured, water is contaminated, and ecosystems are disrupted. The social, economic, and cultural impacts on the local people can be profound, and the impacted communities are frequently indigenous. In terms of what they do to land and to people, many hydro projects belong in the same tradition of industrial colonialism as resource extraction projects like mining and fossil fuels. Ramona Nekaway is a professor at the University College of the North in Thompson, Manitoba. She's also a member of Nischawayasik Cree Nation, a hydro-impacted community. Stefan McLaughlin is a professor at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg. They do research studying the impacts and implications of hydroelectricity projects on the environment and on indigenous communities. They are part of a project called Wani Skatan, a Cree phrase meaning rise up or wake up. It is an alliance that brings together people from communities in Manitoba, which have been impacted by hydro projects, as well as supporters, for both action and research. Though a range of communities from across the province are involved, the core of the project's work centers Cree communities in the northern part of the province, including NECAways. There is, of course, a fraught history when it comes to collaborations between academics and frontline communities, so it is a priority for the Alliance to center the communities and community members in decision-making, and to emphasize equity in its operations. The impacts of hydro projects in Manitoba have not been systematically documented since the 1970s, so that is one aspect of the Alliance's work. People from impacted communities have made it a major priority for the Alliance to use the resulting material, including the stories of residents, to educate decision-makers, and to raise awareness and mobilize support among grassroots people elsewhere in the country. The Alliance also engages in other forms of research, documentary filmmaking, developing teaching resources, and providing support and mentorship for Indigenous youth, To as great an extent as possible, they work to get resources to communities and to create opportunities for cross-community relationship building and collaboration. Another key part of the Alliance's work is creating opportunities for people from impacted communities to advocate directly with relevant regulators and decision-makers. And the Alliance's next big event will be a gathering from November 8th to 10th in Winnipeg that will bring together people from hydro-impacted communities not only in Manitoba, but from other parts of Canada and from around the world. I speak with Nekaway and McLaughlin about the impacts that hydro projects have had on communities in Manitoba, and about the work of Wani Skatan. I'm Steph McLaughlin.
1: I'm a prof at the University of Manitoba. and have been there for almost 20 years. I'm trained as a biologist originally, but now I'm doing a lot of research and teaching around environmental and social justice. And one of these areas of study is obviously the implications of hydropower for environments and indigenous communities, primarily in Manitoba, but increasingly in other parts of Canada and the world.
2: I'm Ramona Nekoway. I'm a professor, at University College of the North, Thompson Campus. And so I'm actually from a hydro community up in northern Manitoba from Miss Cree Nation. cremation. I've been doing work in this area for the last maybe 10 years or so, and a lot of my research has focused on the impacts and implications of hydropower on Indigenous communities. I've also been describing myself as a child of the flood because my generation has witnessed changing landscapes, sloping shorelines, you know, contaminated waters, floodwaters, Really what's going on is dewatering of lakes, moving of mass amounts of water where it had not been before and causing flooding. So my generation as children of the flood has seen the land in a state that was not like the state of the water, state of the land that our grandparents and that our parents knew. And it's actually quite devastating when we think about the impact of that movement of water.
0: Tell listeners about the territory where this is going on and about the kinds of things that have been happening that mean there's a need for the project that we're going to be talking about today.
2: What's taking place is called the Churchill River Diversion. Borrowing language from one of the community people that we work with, it's the dewatering of South Indian Lake and then moving mass amounts of water through man-made channels into different bodies of water up in the north. So a lot of what we're looking at and talking about is taking place in the north, though not exclusively. These are predominantly Cree communities. They've got about a 40-year history with regard to this industry presence in the north. Some of the impacts are cultural, economic. You know, we've got some legal impacts in terms of Aboriginal rights. You've got social impacts, environmental impacts, which are incredible. And again, a lot of people don't know the cost and the footprint of hydropower in the North. And so some of the work that we're trying to do is to raise awareness about what's taking place and, you know, the mass the amount of shorelines that are being lost to the so-called clean energy in the North. And a lot of that shoreline and the land and the waterway was incredibly important for Cree peoples in the north. And a lot of our cultural heritage has been sacrificed in the name of this so-called green energy.
1: As someone who's done a lot of work over the years in the tar sands, it's really easy for folks from the south to hate on the blemish, you know, the Mordor vision, this nastiness that you can see from outer space as far as the tar sands are concerned in contrast, you've got Manitoba Hydro and many, many other hydro-related corporations that market themselves as being green, as being sustainable, as being the alternative moving forward. And so some folks from the South are kind of taught somehow to respect hydro as being a sustainable alternative. And, you know, even when you go to some of these communities, it's not always as evidence, say it's something like the tar sands or, you know, coal industry or you name it, that these impacts are as devastating as they are. But it's when you talk to people that you realize the impacts occur of multiple dimensions. We're talking about a landscape here that is relatively flat and undulating, lots of waterways. You've got these massive rivers moving northwards, and so you've got these incredible rapids that people have used since time immemorial for a number of different things. And then what happens is that there was this plan that really emerged in the late 1800s, which was to change that river system and to harness it for the use of folks down the south. And that's what's been taken. And so now you have this integrated system that includes Lake Winnipeg as a reservoir for the power. And then over 20 dams spread across central and northern Manitoba Billions and billions of dollars of investment, which has basically harnessed that energy with devastating impacts to the environment, but also to people, as Ramona was saying. It's kind of percolated through the whole north. So it's not something, despite those impacts, that's immediately evident. And so what we're trying to do, one of our primary priorities, is to teach people about those impacts.
0: What is Waniskatan, and how did it come to be?
1: Individually, a number of us, profs and students and environmental NGOs and lawyers and obviously folks from the North had all been individually working around these issues and doing what they could individually to address some of the impacts that Ramona was talking about. There was kind of a tour that was arranged, I guess it would have been five or six years ago now, where a number of us went and visited five or six of these communities, but one of which is Ramona's community, and saw these impacts firsthand. We were kind of stuck in these vehicles for seven or eight days and just think we have to do something about this. There was this increased collective concern and insight and realization that the impacts were so great that we would have to do something primarily as academics, but also in terms of civil society to address these impacts. Because basically, since the early 60s, the government and industry working hand in hand have been able to do whatever they wanted to do up there. And it's really out of sight and out of mind as far as the folks like me from down south are concerned. So a few senior academics had access to funds that we were able to come up with a gathering. That was the first meeting point, which now takes place annually, where we brought as many people as we could from the north to connect with folks from the south to try to figure out what we were going to do. At that point, we realized that we could do something collectively that was shaped as equitably and as open and transparent way as possible from folks from the North and the South working together, we applied to the government for a multi-million dollar grant that itself took two and a half years to achieve. It's called the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, or SSHRC Partnership Grant. And that gave us the stability, the core funding that we were able to say, okay, so for seven years, we've got the funding that we can really do something different that's high in impact. And that goes beyond just research but it's really fundamentally action-oriented. So what's happened, say, over the last three or four years is that that formal partnership, the Alliance, has really come to be something that's more and more action-oriented and really is manifest around change. And so it's not just study, it's not just understanding, but it's really trying to push back in some fundamental way.
2: We work with a... Steph said, a number of researchers, but we also work with hydro people, people in the north. I think that's a quite important objective of some of the work that we do in the Alliance. So what is that then means, wake up or rise up and create. This term came out of one of our meetings when we started having conversations about what we wanted to do, what our goal was, what our vision involved. People did come up with this idea that people needed to wake up to what's taking place in the north and elsewhere in Manitoba in the name of energy production, in the name of hydropower. And again, it came out of one of the earliest meetings that we had had around building this network of people coming together to share conversations and visions and pathways on where we could go and how we get there
1: was actually an elder from one of the hydro-impacted communities who came up with it. Right from the beginning, we've tried to set up a situation through the governance, so in terms of the way we make decisions, in terms of our plans for moving forward, all of our different actions, some of which are quite conventional as research, and others are very action-oriented and activist in inclination, others very much grounded in teaching. All of that collective impact that we're having, we try to do it in a way that's equitable internally as well. And so at every stage along the process, we foreground the hydro impact to communities and members from those communities so that they play a lead role in making decisions. And I think that percolates through the entire
0: alliance. Talk more about the kinds of research and the kinds of action that are happening under the banner of the Wani-Skatan Alliance.
1: One thing that I know Ramona and I are both interested in is documenting these impacts. A number of us were individually doing that, but it's been almost 40 years since any of that has occurred at any scale that's fully appreciable. So systematically what we've been trying to do is talk to people using video, using GIS and mapping, really systematically document what those impacts are being currently, but also walking backwards in time. And that's really important because a lot of the people who have grown up prior to these flooding impacts are now in their 70s and 80s. And so those experiences, those stories are really, really important. And so that kind of documentation, archiving, making those kinds of stories available making them available to decision makers, to anybody who's interested as being kind of an important part of what we've been doing. One of the side projects that Ramona and I are both working on is trying to figure out a way that we can create community-based monitoring programs up north that are simultaneously grounded in environmental sciences and Indigenous knowledge. There's a group of four Indigenous students who have been working with us over the summer
2: We do a lot of advocacy and support work. We do a lot of education and mentorship. As Steph mentioned, we are currently mentoring Indigenous students around some of the issues that we are looking at. We also do cross-community projects. In the past, we've had youth camps. That was something that early on folks, particularly from the North and particularly grassroots people from Indigenous communities, thought was an important priority, educating the young people, educating them about the impacts of hydropower, but also giving them an opportunity to experience and learn about their own cultures, learn about their own ways of living prior to the flooding, prior to the displacement of this water, prior to the water coming up. That's actually transitioned into this new kind of project that we're working on now that Steph mentioned around getting youth interested and engaged in the sciences and looking to build capacity in the North and generate curiosity in this particular area. We're doing also work around film documentaries. We've got a number of projects on the go. Fundamentally, I think a lot of the work we're doing is around knowledge exchange, so exchanging knowledge between communities. Because one of the things I've learned in the last several years doing this work, particularly with the Alliance, is each community has its own story. And sometimes we don't necessarily know each other's stories. So the coming together of people, for example, at these gatherings is an important networking moment or a time when people can come together and share stories. Not just of this disruption, but also of the incredible cultural heritage that continues to exist in the communities despite some of these disruptions that we've been talking about. And so some of the key actions that we've been involved in recently, taking the stories, taking the messages, taking the histories, taking the experiences to other places, to other peoples, to share that information with folks elsewhere.
1: That's a common strategy, is this divide-and-conquer strategy that industry and governments have used since settlement. So fundamentally, the alliance has been about resisting that, as Ramona says, bringing people together in many, many ways to brainstorm and to think action together. That's so, so important. Another dimension to Wanish Ketan is about a quarter of our funding we provide to the communities themselves in terms of relatively small community projects. Communities come together, sometimes individually, sometimes collectively, to come up with proposals that they themselves want to see. Over the years, that's resulted in about 20, 30 different projects that are, in most cases and increasingly so, initiated by the communities themselves. Some of those involve youth camps. Some of those involve, you know, recently uh, gatherings of grandmothers to talk about the impacts of hydro. Sometimes women and girls talking about the violence that's inherent in hydro. There was a walk where a young man decided he was going to walk from his northern hydro-impacted community down to Winnipeg to try to raise awareness. And so there's a huge diversity of projects that we're able to support.
2: I think the alliance has given Indigenous peoples and other peoples who are concerned about what's happening with the environment and the impacts on the environment and social justice and environmental justice an avenue to come together and to voice those concerns and to raise awareness. One of the things that we've done through the alliance is, for example, going to the National Energy Board and raise some critical discourse in that space. We've gone to the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Peoples recently. We've recently gone to Ottawa and met with other hydro affected peoples across the country, folks that are raising concerns around what's happening with Muskrat Falls. And we're able to send that message outside the province now and make alliances and engage in collaboration elsewhere. We've also supported research and other folks taking the message and having opportunities to network and have conversations in international forums.
1: We had anticipated that the first three of our seven years of funding would really be inward and focused. And so here, we'll be working with communities primarily from Northern, but across Manitoba in terms of figuring out what those impacts were and figuring out how to document and communicate those impacts. And then we anticipated that the second phase of that funding cycle would be reaching out for sure in terms of decision makers and UN and the federal government and pushing back and increasing that awareness, but also reaching out to communities in other parts of Canada and around the world. And so what we're doing is we're having an international gathering in November. We're bringing in hydro-impacted and their allies from Asia, from Latin America, from Africa, from Northern Europe, from other parts of Canada to share those stories in the way that we did six, seven years ago within Manitoba, but also to talk about, well, how can we collectively resist this?
0: So, regardless of whether they're things your alliance can actually do, what do you most consistently hear from grassroots people in hydro-impacted communities about what needs to happen to mitigate these impacts, to reduce some of the harms that have been done over the last few decades?
2: I, I don't think we've mentioned this issue is quite polarizing, I think, in the North. There's just a diverse range of perspectives on hydropower in the north. You've got some communities like mine that's actually partnered in one of these newer hydro projects. So there's quite a diverse range. And so we're working with grassroots people who have concerns about what's taking place.
1: Communities are diverse, right? There are many people who have jobs even outside of those partnership agreements. And the leaders who feel that the only avenue for moving forward is to work with hydro in that capacity and through those agreements is to create opportunities for their members. But no one denies that the impacts are going to be there.
2: We're hearing about the incredible injustice taking place in the north in the name of this so called Green Energy. From revisiting the way governments and industry are using things like the augmented flow program to operate the system. We're hearing folks talk about implementation of the Northern Flood Agreement. And, you know, I think. In the last number of years that I've been up in the North and talking to other hydro-affected people, I think one of the things that kind of comes out for me in hearing these conversations is the lack of respect. And I think, again, I can only speak for myself, people want to be respected and have their communities and their histories and their stories and their cultural heritage respected. In what we've seen over the last decade or so, the impact to Indigenous communities have been great. I spoke briefly about the cultural heritage that's been lost and that is being lost with the production of this energy source. We are definitely hearing from folks that this has been and continues to be a great impact. And now I think we're hearing concern from folks in the North about the health impacts of these projects and whether or not there are any impacts from these projects on their health and well-being, their physical health and well-being. So I think that's one of the things that comes to my mind when we think about what some folks in the north are saying about what's happening.
1: I think also there's a fundamental belief that if we can somehow make people down south aware of what's taking place north, that they will care. And so it's not just numbers. It's not just, you know, research proper It's not just PowerPoint, you know, or even behind-the-door meetings with decision-makers, which is kind of the default, but it's making those stories available to other Manitobans and other Canadians. There's so much history up north and so much insight, and I think still a lot of trust that if Canadians become aware of these stories, most of which are still not accessible that they have the wherewithal that they will want to do something about the injustice that's taking place there. We recognize that it's not possible, obviously, for all Canadians to visit those communities and to hear those stories. So one of the fundamental parts of what Waniskatan is doing is making those stories as accessible and as impactful as we possibly can and to foreground those voices and those stories. And then in the background to create the ability that Canadians in different kinds of ways can participate in pushing back and making a difference around those impacts.
2: One of the things I think that needs to happen in order for change to take place is for consumers and for users of this power to become aware of what's involved and what the consequences or what the implications of this energy source is, not just for Indigenous peoples, but also for the environment. We need a more rigorous environmental monitoring program that isn't controlled by the producers of this energy. I think we need to have citizens and consumers demand accountability for what's taking place in the name of this energy source and I think there are ways that folks can ask questions. On our website, we've got some different initiatives that are available so if you want more information or want to learn about some of these impacts or some of what we do, we're at hydroimpacted.ca. So, of course, in addition to like policy change and things like that, I think there are things that the average person can do in terms of having folks that are making decisions be accountable. But part of that, again, is just understanding and gaining some awareness of what's going on in the North and elsewhere. And
1: the other thing is to counter the incredible spin that's taking place around green energy. And it's not just hydro. Similar kind of thing exists around climate change, where folks from the South take advantage and benefit, in a sense, from the injustice that's taking place up North. And so there's the greenwashing around sustainable energy. And you see that very much when you look at the advertisements across the country, whether it's Quebec, whether it's SiteSea, whether it's Labrador, whether it's here in Manitoba in terms of how viable and green and sustainable this alternative energy source is, that is hydro, but also there's this idea of what some people call bed-washing, right, where you look on the websites and you hear and see this incredibly good job that hydro is ostensibly doing through these quote-unquote limited partnerships and bringing communities in to be at the table in terms of making decisions and so there's this spin, you know, there's this facade and this narrative that hydro is doing things differently now. And maybe what we need to do is to apologize for the past impacts, but moving forward somehow that hydro and governments are working together in different kinds of ways with communities. And people choke on those lies. And so it's up to us, in a sense, to make those lies transparent and self-evident and to show the truth of what's taking place there.
0: You have been listening to my interview with Ramona Neckaway and Stefan McLaughlin of Wani-Skatan, an alliance of hydro-impacted communities. To learn more about Wani-Skatan, go to hydroimpacted.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.